Welcome to Legacy Sport Live, stories of the people who are shaping the conversation at the intersection of sport, business and purpose. I'm Neil Duffy, co-author of our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Today I talk with John Balcom, my colleague at 17 Sport, fellow author and social entrepreneur to discuss the role of purpose in sport. John shares some interesting thoughts on how sports and athletes need to relook at their value proposition if they're to use their brand as a powerful force for good and remain relevant in the future. So, John, it's, it's great to have you with us today um, as a fellow student of um, the sports uh, industry when it comes to purpose and how to use sport as a platform to improve people's lives. Um, wanted to start off by understanding how you started off on this whole journey. How did, what piqued your interest initially to get you thinking that this is something you'd like to spend your time, time on? Yeah, thanks, Neil. And it's great to, to have this conversation with you. So, I like to tell people that I was the kid growing up who watched SportsCenter for three hours every day, you know, just watching it over and over again. So I've been very much obsessed with the sports world uh, for, for a very long time. But I also, I think what kind of made me interested at the intersection of social impact and sports was my time uh, at Georgetown University uh, in Washington, DC. I, um, I was taking a sports marketing course at the same time as taking a social entrepreneurship course. So I was learning all about, you know, what are the kind of the fundamentals of sports marketing at the same time, learning about this idea of building businesses that are both profitable and create social good. And it just made perfect sense to me. I think this was the spring of 2013 and I was, you know, getting ready to finish up, uh, at Georgetown, but I, you know, it was kind of a light bulb moment or a light bulb experience for me that, oh, absolutely businesses should be uh, about more than just profits. So I would say everything that I've tried to do since graduating from Georgetown in my career has been, how can I find a way to combine my, you know, my, my lifelong passion for sports in a way that I can also work on businesses that are creating you know value for people on the planet that just above and beyond uh, just profits mm. so that's really interesting so what what, do you, what would you sort of um, identify as the main differences between the way that sports marketing is run and the way that social enterprises are run yeah that's an interesting question i would say that sports marketing has been pretty has been lacking innovation uh, that that's just been an observation of mine that more or less what we've seen from brands that that use the platform of sports to connect with consumers it hasn't really changed that much uh, in recent years i would say you're, we're starting to see uh, it, it flip a little bit but only because consumers are demanding that companies stand for more than just you know, hey, here's how great our product is. And we, we love your team, so you should love us. So I would say that the reason I wanted to, to start contributing to this space of sports marketing, 
but introducing purpose-driven practices into business is I felt like things had been pretty static or, or, or lacking innovation in sports marketing. And I felt like there was a big opportunity for brands to understand the power of, of you know, social impact in their business and, and in their marketing message as a way of connecting to consumers and then using the platform or megaphone of sports where there's so much emotion tied up into it. I felt like there's a way to build this kind of much more powerful marketing platform by, by driving like true impact in the community. Um, but then communicating that through your sports, sports marketing platform. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, yeah. that's really where I've been trying to to go and, and contribute towards the conversation. So just diving back into the sports marketing piece a little bit, um, the prevailing model right now seems to be, and of course there are exceptions, but the, in the main, the prevailing model in sports seems to be that you do what you do, you show up, you make a whole lot of money from the broadcast deals and the, the sponsorship deals. Um, and then you give a little bit of it back through either a community relations department or a foundation. Um, but social impact doesn't seem to be ingrained within the business model of most sports teams and leagues to the same extent that it would be if they were run as social enterprises. Do you think that's, that's a fair comment? Absolutely. I think that there's been a gap, Neil, between the, we'll call it the revenue department for sports leagues and teams and the community relations department or even the foundation. They're usually operating in two different silos, right? And to me, that is a missed opportunity. I think that because consumers and, you know, you, you could say that it's mostly young consumers, but I think almost all consumers are this way now where they're like, why should I give a shit about your brand? Uh, if you're, if you're just, advertising at the arena that I go to or with the team that I care about. I care about this team. I don't really care about your brand. So, you know, why should I care about you? I think you should uh, think about marrying or, or combining the efforts of the revenue team and the community relations department to deliver better value for your brand partners. And as a, as a brand that's spending money in sports marketing, the first thing that you should think about when you're approaching a league or a team or an athlete is what value can I provide to society or what, what message can I promote that will be inspiring, you know, when it comes to contributing to, to the climate crisis, you know, it's not about look at us, the brand, or look at, look at, uh, look at us, the, the sports team, it's look at what, you know, you, the, the, the consumer can do, you know, in partnership with, with us and this team or this athlete that you care about. So I, I think that some teams, and, and we can get into like a couple examples of teams that I think are doing a better job at, at like combining the sponsorship or revenue team and the community relations department and starting to integrate those. But I would, I would, argue that it's probably not quite there yet and there there still is a bit of a, a gap there why do you think that is well it's just been it's been done that way for so long right I, I, it's tough to to change when you you know you look at the sports business and everything's going up and to the right yeah i don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head i know that from a sponsorship spending 
perspective in North America, it's like over $20 billion is spent on sponsorship. And it's probably 70 billion in, uh, in uh, worldwide. But a, a large chunk of that sponsorship spending goes into sports. And it's been growing at a, at a nice 4% rate every year. So when things are going, well, wow, that's not when you're like, oh, let's tear, the, tear down our processes and, and shift and do new things, right? It's like, oh, you know, things are going well. Brands want, want more. They want, you know. So I think that there, the change has been a bit slower because the, the, the industry has been growing so well. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And so do you think, what do you think it's going to take to get sports to uh, recognize or acknowledge, understand that the world is changing around them and that maybe sponsors tomorrow are going to have a different expectation of the kind of value proposition that they have with a sports property than they did yesterday? Yeah, unfortunately, I think sports properties might have to bleed a little bit on the bottom line. To, to realize that they have to change their, their approach. So let's, let's say, for example, you know, uh, a, a professional sports team, you know, here in Washington, D.C., you know, I won't, I won't name a specific one, but let's say they, they lost a, a big partner because they, the partner said, oh, we actually want to go spend on this new asset that allows us to fulfill kind of our company's purpose. If a, if, a, if a team sees that and they're seeing, oh, we're actually losing sponsorship revenue because we didn't have enough in the way of a social impact or purpose package, so to speak, to, to deliver for this brand, that will kind of put the, you know, the red light will go off in the, in the, in the revenue officer's uh, uh, office and, and make him like rethink and make his team rethink or her team rethink how they're approaching sponsorship packages mm -hmm. and this is you know i i think of I, I spent a lot of time thinking about sponsorship that was what my book was about but i think it, it could also apply towards ticket sales too like if you're seeing your ticket sales go down consider are you delivering value to where the community sees that you care about them or that the, the community sees you know that you're helping move the the you know whether it's here in washington or, or nationally you're moving the conversation forward on, on climate. Um, there's all kinds of different factors that go into, you know, declining ticket sales, but, you know, I don't think we can discount the fact that younger people don't feel like these leagues and teams align with their values. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's conceivable that fans could actually start boycotting teams and leagues that don't align with their values and um, put as much emphasis on, making the world a better place as they do on making profits? You know, it's entirely possible. And unfortunately, if things start to get more drastic when it comes to, well, I mean, even this year, Neil, things are getting more drastic when it comes to the climate crisis and Australia being the number one example. But, you know, if things start to get more drastic and things get more uh, dire when it comes to climate uh, and, and, you know, really natural disasters getting worse uh, and, and, you know, people's jobs being affected or things of that nature, then yeah, I, I could absolutely see people just saying, look, if you're emitting too much carbon as a league or a team, or if you are, you know, not diverting waste, you know, and you're still contributing plastic waste, 
into the oceans. We're just not going to support your league. We're not going to support your team. So uh, I would, if I were a business leader in sports, that's a pretty significant risk to, to think about, right? So you, you, if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. And if you're part of the problem, you risk losing a lot of money in your business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen, we've seen examples of fan activism before. I mean, the one that springs to mind is Ray Rice after he was accused of that incident in the elevator with his wife. And the next couple of days, the fans were lining up outside the stadium to hand back their, their jerseys, their Ray Rice jerseys, because right. they, they didn't want to be associated with a player whose values didn't align with theirs. So, I mean, there are examples of where fans have stood up for what they believe and prepared to put their wallets alongside that. Right. And actually, Neil, you know, on, on, the, on the opposite side of that, you know, the, you know, Ray Rice was a really sad and unfortunate um, event and, and, you know, was an example of a player who really went against um, everything that, that, you know, society believes in. But I actually think that we're starting to see athletes become more of like the quarterback on social issues. You know what I mean? And, and Megan Rapino last year, during the U.S. women's national team's run to the World Cup, she was simultaneously performing on the field while also helping lead the charge around uh, women's equality. And to me, I think the examples that we see in, in U.S. U.S. sports certainly, but it's starting to I think grow a little bit overseas that athletes realize how much power and influence they have. And fortunately, many of them are choosing to use that influence and power for good. So I think the, the people like Megan Rapinoe, you know, in the NBA, LeBron James is like kind of an awesome example for any athlete coming up on how to use your platform for good. I think it's going to start bleeding into marketing deals too. And actually a great example that I was just reading about or, or kind of revisiting this week was uh, how Stephen Curry he, he's also a, a, a big golfer outside of his NBA career. And he initially made a donation to Howard University to fund their uh, a Division I golf program to increase diversity in golf. But you'll notice that shortly after that, he then used a sponsorship or endorsement deal with Callaway to further that mission. So the, in the announcement that, that Callaway made with Steph Curry on this, they talked about we're going to use this deal or this partnership to invest further in equity and representation in the game of golf. So I think that is actually, you know, the template going forward is that athletes will be kind of taking stands on certain social issues. And then the brands will kind of follow along and put their resources behind athletes like, like Steph Curry to augment or kind of cheer them on. Uh, in in their kind of fight for progress or whatever issue it may be. Mm. So it's really interesting the way the dynamics, the power dynamics are changing in sport. You know, whereas historically you would have, as a brand, you would have sought out a partnership with a property or a league because that gave you access to that audience. What the athletes are starting to show us now is that they have their own built-in audience and that they can deliver um, as much value, if not more, than the property can for a brand who wants to get closer to that audience and, and maybe do it in a less complicated uh, bureaucratic way. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think of it this way, Neil, 
like what's one of the biggest challenges for a brand to actually talk to their audience is that a brand is not a human, <laughs> you know, a brand is not a human, but they try and act human. Right. So to have a spokesperson, like a, a spokesperson, like a Megan Rapino or a Stephen Curry to kind of more so be the cheerleader for, for that human and have that person communicate to your target audience. To me, that's a much better way to talk and, and connect with a specific audience than just going, you know, if Calway were just to do that project on their own to try and increase, increase diversity into the game of golf, it might not seem as important or it might seem disingenuous, but by partnering with a human, uh, having a human face and voice to that partnership and Steph Curry, who has a genuine passion and interest in the cause, I think it's going to be much more effective. They haven't even really started activating that partnership as we sit here in early 2020, but watch how that plays out. Watch how other brands realize that, yes, we need to have human faces and voices to our platforms that people admire because that's how we can actually get through. Uh, it will be interesting to see though, because then the challenge becomes how do we, how do we get our brand to be remembered when we're associating with all this star power? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that might be, that be, might be a, a bit of a challenge. Yeah. I think it's the same challenge if you're dealing with a property or a, or a team, it's, um, you know, you, you are one of many partners around a property or team, just like you'll be one of many around an athlete. Right. It then comes down to creative, creative execution or activation around that partnership to make sure that you drive that connection home and make, you know, make, make the fans understand that there is that link. But I, I th I'm, I'm a big believer in collaborations. I think that the mag magic happens when you bring together multiple stakeholders around a shared mission um, you know, to drive value for everybody. So I think the other interesting dynamic in all of this is nonprofits. You know, right. nonprofits that are involved in sport are using using sport to improve people's lives. You know, there's a huge, huge trust factor with with many nonprofits. I think people generally trust nonprofits to do the right thing. I mean, we saw that in the recent Edelman Trust uh, report that came out. Um, you know, so if you combine the, the the human factor with the athletes, the trustability of the nonprofits that are doing the real work on the ground and the firepower of the brands, I think it's a pretty powerful combination. Um, and theoretically, you could say that you don't even need the sports property to be part of that mix for it to work. Um, so that's what I'd be worried about if I was a, an executive running a sports property or team. Um, right. and, then, and then you add to that, John, the fact that now the, the athletes are starting to control their own media. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we saw this week Players TV was announced. So, you know, athletes, it's basically supposed to be the Netflix of, of, of sport. Um, so that creates, you know, another interesting dynamic when the athletes have control of their own media. They don't need to rely on the sports properties media or the broadcasters of those sports properties media in order to, to engage with their fans and communicate. Right. That's going to be fascinating to watch because, yeah, that does get into the sense of if I'm a brand and I can just go partner directly with the, the really high profile athletes. Why am I also spending many money with a, uh, with the league or the team? Um, it, it will be a challenge, but I think maybe the way to think about this is, you know, what are, what is the, the proper way to think about a property's role in social change? Like if you're, if you're a, 
professional sports team? What is your role in social impact, right? How do you use your business as a force for good? Uh, that's worth kind of reflecting on for each individual sports property and each league. And to me, I, I think a lot of properties get this. They kind of realize that they are, they're kind of like a convener in each city or each community that they're in and they're a platform almost, right? They, because they have fans that, that care, that have long-standing relationships with their team, they're, they're more of a platform versus, you know, a player is, is more of a, a voice. So as a team, I think you could think about how do I amplify the good work of the nonprofits in my city? And I'll, I, the one I'm thinking about, since I'm here in Washington, D.C., I've actually, you know, watched Monumental Sports, which includes both uh, the Washington Wizards, the Washington Mystics, and the Washington Capitals. I have kind of watched how their sponsorship has evolved. And the cool thing that they've started to do is actually highlight one community partner per month. And they use their social media handles to, let's say, for example, highlight DC Central Kitchen here in Washington, which is doing amazing work around um, fighting hunger and making sure that families in need get food uh, and, you know, ha have access to food. I think that's awesome that they are leveraging their platform as a kind of a community convener to, to highlight good work that's being done. And then I think the next step for Monumental will be how do we get a, maybe a giant food to come in or, or another food brand to come in and sponsor the highlighting of the DC Central Kitchen program so that they can raise more money and further the mission here in Washington. That's, I think, where the, these things are going is the property will be kind of like the point person to highlight and give lots of um, exposure to the great work of the nonprofits. And then they'll also need, they're going to need new assets to deliver to brands, you know, not just the traditional things that we see in game, you know, in the arena. I think community assets are actually going to be much more valuable mm -hmm. sponsorship assets. And, it, and it, it's, that's where I think this is going is that the teams and the leagues will think about their community assets more so as investment vehicles for their sponsors. What, yeah. do you, what do you think about that? Hundred percent. I think. I mean, there are definitely advantages to you know both an athlete-driven program versus a property-driven program. They both have their advantages and disadvantages. I mean, the nice the nice thing about a property-led um, investment is that it's much more stable. You know, a big-name athlete can things can go wrong a lot a lot quicker or a lot easier than they can with a sports property. In the or main, they can be traded or leave yeah. free agency. Yeah, or they can get injured. Um, they. Right. You know, so, I mean, you know, you've got to think very carefully as a brand, you know, which of those directions you want to go. But, but yeah, to come back to your point about, you know, prop platforms, properties as platforms, um, that's definitely the case. I mean, they are, convener is a great word to use, um, you know, for a property. But, but I think that the, in order for that strategy to work, it has to be, an, there has to be a the level of authenticity around why they're doing it. Absolutely. So I think if sport just tries to be opportunistic and to, you know, in your example, and I'm not suggesting that this is what they're doing, but to, you know, well, the easy way is let's just highlight one nonprofit a month and then we're now purposeful property. Right. That's not enough. You need to, they really need to authentically embrace 
the idea that they can use their platform to drive meaningful societal change. And that almost needs to become their purpose. Um, the way that they deliver against that purpose is by putting, a, putting on great events or putting, on a, putting a great team, great competitive team on the park that can win competitions. Um, you know, so if I think, think of an example with Super Bowl 50, um, you know, we took the decision with that event that we would use, um, that our purpose as the host committee for Super Bowl 50 would be to improve the lives of young people in the Bay Area. The way that we would do that was by leveraging Super Bowl 50 as a platform to raise funding, awareness, engagement, um, to make that purpose possible. Um, and that's very different from, you know, what I think most host committees um, around Super Bowls will say. If you ask them what their purpose is, they'll say their purpose is to put on the best Super Bowl ever. Right. Um, and it's a very subtle but a huge, very, very important shift in terms of thinking. Um, you know, and so I think if, if sports properties can identify what their purpose is, how the world will be better off as a result of their intervention, and then bake that into every aspect of their operations, then I think that strategy will definitely work. But if they're going to continue to just play, you know, lip service to nonprofits and community engagement um, as something that sits on the fringes of their business, I think that's also potentially really damaging because right. the fan, fans will see through that and hold them accountable for that. Right. Um, yeah, one thing I've been thinking about too, Neil, is like as we evolve and, and people start to push all businesses, you know, whether you're in sports or not, on this idea that we always have to be driven by profits right, and growth as opposed to be driven by actual, you know, societal, you know, peace, justice, and, you know, you know the opportunities um, in society, you know, sports businesses really could have the opportunity to kind of unite around a common like macro purpose, right. That's, that's authentic to sports business. I, I know that business is, is competitive by nature, but imagine if we, you know, literally as a sports industry, as a whole, we decided this is, you know, these are the five sustainable development goals that we are all, we're going to contribute to this that's authentic to our business inherently. And we're going to go after over the next 10 years, let's go after, you know, healthy living. Let's go after quality education or, you know, and choose maybe three to five of these. What if we kind of convened the sports business around that common purpose so that everyone has kind of a, a true North to point towards in the sports business. And then you can kind of tweak that, on a micro level from a, from a team perspective, because every community is going to have a little bit different needs, right? Here in Washington, things are going to be different on the ground and in the community than where you are in San Francisco. But couldn't you, couldn't you envision a way to kind of coalesce around a common purpose? I, maybe this is, maybe this is crazy. Like maybe there's, there's, I don't there's know. no chance. I don't but, think it's but, crazy at all. I think well, it's why a, not, you know, what, no, what's, gonna, what's stopping us? It's I think the only thing that's stopping us is our sense of competition and this concept of exclusivity that unfortunately reigns supreme um, in sport. Um, and it, it just reminds me of a conversation I was in, in uh, about a year ago with um, executives from the major leagues um, in the US. And it was actually quite interesting because this, a similar idea was put forward during that conversation. You know, is there an opportunity for us to coalesce or come together around a shared mission and use our collective power and influence to really make a difference and to be noticed for it? 
Um, and four of, four of the five participants in the conversation said, hey, we think we could do that because maybe this, is, this stuff's important enough that we don't need to be competing about it, around it. But unfortunately, the fifth partner said, no, well, I don't agree with you because for us, it's a point of difference. And therefore, we would never consider being part of something like that. Mm. So, you know, there's that, that underlying um, that underlying thread of competitiveness or exclusivity. Sure. That, but I, I think it's a great idea. And, and um, you know, that, that's a challenge we should put out to the industry is to figure out how to come together to uh, focus on one or more issues and to make a real difference. Um, so much so that, you know, when, if, 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 we, if you were to stop doing that in 10 years time, the world would actually be the poorer for it. Um, right. As opposed to right now, where let's face it, if most of the things that most of the teams and leagues did stopped, or the athletes stopped, it wouldn't really make any difference to anybody in the bigger scheme of things. You know, they they're nice. They're all nice initiatives on their own, but they're not going to you know halt the halt the, the the march of climate change, for example. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Anyway, John, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, thank you so much for your time, and um, we need to do this again. Absolutely. Really enjoyed it, Neil. Thanks. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this edition of Legacy Sport Live, the companion podcast series to our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Please visit our website at www.legacysport.org to order your copy of the book and join our growing community of sports business professionals committed to doing good while doing well through sport.